Today's topic is the remarkable life and afterlife of the man who created Tevye, the world's Hashem Aleichem. Jeremy Dalber over there, the young man, is a, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a second, but he wrote the definitive and new biography of Shalom Aleichem. He'll tell you more about it, but apparently no one else thought to write the story. So uh, this book just came out in October. We are selling it for $20 after the program, and you get to have it signed by the authors. I hope you will get a copy. Um, okay, who is Jeremy Dauber? Professor Dauber is the Atran Professor of Yiddish Literature and Culture at Columbia University, where he also uh, served as director of its Institute for Israel and Jewish Studies and teaches the American Studies program. He received his undergraduate degree from Harvard University and his doctorate from the University of Oxford, which he attended as a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, his new book, The World of Shalom Aleichem, dot, 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 um, has been reviewed by many uh, individuals in the press. The Huffington Post called it one of the fall's hottest biographies, and it was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award and received the American Library Association's Sophie Brody Honor, Honor Medal. I don't think I want to say anything more about the book or the speaker or the topic because we have 45 minutes to an hour to hear more about it. I urge you all to... Uh, Stay afterwards, um, enjoy the reception being um, uh, given to us by Batyam, and get your book and get it signed. Thank you very much. And Jeremy, it's all yours. Good luck. Jeremy is fasting, you should know, because it is the 17th day of Tammuz. So I told him he cannot go into a um, you know, fast coma. He's got to keep the energy going. So we need a lot of positive energy from the room. So we're going to clap you to the air. We're going to get you going. Thank you all uh, very much. Thank you, Ari. Thank you very much. And please, let's just give a round of applause to Ari for all the work he does for uh, Adult Ed in Orange County. Uh, as he says, this is the third of a four-part lecture series, and I really uh, have just been overwhelmed by how warm the reception is, and I'm acutely aware that it's because I've had 13 or 14 years of prep work sort of preparing for how good it is. So, uh, so again, Ari, thank you. Thank you to the whole Community Scholars Program, everyone who supports it. Um, I have also uh, been told uh, that I, um, how would I put this, that I have moved, in some of the previous lectures, people have come back despite the fact that I have moved away from the microphone uh, a little bit. And this reminds me, I've moved from side to side, uh, I, th I, this reminds me of a joke, some of you may know this joke, that Mrs. Greenstein, this is on the Lower East Side, Mrs. Greenstein comes to a peddler, comes back to a peddler, and she's very, very angry. And she says, you rotten, no good, you know, son of a something, uh, you sold me a lousy fan. And the peddler says, what's the matter with the fan? And, he, and she says, well, you know, I tried to use it and it ripped, it ripped all to shreds. And he said, well, what did you do? She said, well, you know, I moved back and forth and it ripped. And she says, how much did you pay for that fan? And she said, well, I paid a penny for the fan. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. That's a nickel fan that you wave like this. With a penny fan, you know, you keep it still and you move your head back and forth. <laughs> so I am going to try very hard not to move my head back and forth. But if I do, uh, thanks to Tony, we have a sort of a much more ambient sound here. So hopefully uh, you'll bear with me. Um, that Lower East Side of Mrs. Greenstein and the Penny and the Nickel Fan um, was the scene uh, of a remarkable uh, occasion, a mournful but in its own way a remarkable occasion in 1916, in the spring of 1916. And that was that many, many people, huge and massive crowds, showed up to pay honor 
to a recently deceased Yiddish writer, to Shalom Aleichem. Uh, in 1916, uh, in May of 1916, some number of primarily, we assume, Jews uh, turned out. Crowd estimates vary. I have read in the press 30,000 Jews uh, showed up. I've read 250,000 Jews showed up. It's probably somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of people showed up. And, and, and that was the first of two remarkable things about Shalom Aleichem's funeral procession, just the sheer size of it. So large that it attracted all sorts of attention. You can't have, in, in 1916 in New York, somewhere between 30 and 250,000 people show up without some attention. It's covered in the New York Times, um, among other places, uh, which I will get back to. But that was, as I say, only the first remarkable thing uh, about the funeral. The second is the sheer diversity of types of Jews who were participants in the funeral procession, in the funeral cortege itself. Some of you may be aware of the fact that Jews are a opinionated people. Uh, that they have a, they're a fractious lot, and they have a varying group of opinions. And the beginning of the 20th century was perhaps a period where those divisions, those ideological and other divisions, were as sharply drawn as at any time in Jewish history. And yet, in Sholem Aleichem's funeral procession, Zionists were side by side with Bundists who were side by side with anarchists and Yiddishists were side by side with Hebraists and Orthodox Jews shared and walked behind the coffin procession with conservative and reformed Jews and Jews of no religion at all. Uptown, Easter, uptown German Jewish immigrants in New York uh, walked side by side with Eastern European Jewish immigrants of extremely recent vintage. Uh, all of these Jewish groups joined together in paying honor to Shalom Aleichem. Um, and this was a pretty remarkable thing. He united the Jewish community and would continue in many ways to unite the Jewish community in a way that almost no individual Jewish figure uh, before or perhaps since uh, had done. And the reason, or at least one of the reasons for this was best expressed, maybe not surprisingly, by Shalom Aleichem himself a few years earlier. Uh, Shalom Aleichem had been pitching his autobiography, his life story, to uh, someone who he hoped would fund it, who would provide him money. He needed money, for reasons I'll get back to, uh, to, to, fund this, to fund the project. And he said that his story, Shalom Aleichem's story, was the story of Jewish history writ large, that he had lived all of these aspects of Jewish history, all of the different movements and all of the different uh, developments that were in Jewish history, he had personally been part of or experienced and knew. And, you know, this sounds like hyperbole, but if you hear about the remarkable story of Shalom Aleichem, not of its creations, although, of course, that's part of the story, but of Shalom Aleichem himself, I think you'll find that that is exactly so, that he was not, in fact, uh, 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 being hyperbolizing or was exaggerating, he really did have a remarkable life story, which was useful for me when I went to write his biography, because usually, you know, one of the big concerns that you get when you're writing the biography of a writer is that it will be very deeply boring. 
right? The characters may be interesting, the novel may be interesting, but you know, Monday he wrote, and Tuesday he wrote again, you know. But, but Shalom Aleichem's story is, is fascinating, and I'm going to share a, a, a part of it with you. Uh, you know, the rest of it I have thoughtfully uh, printed up between hard covers. Um, <laughs> But uh, to give you a, a forspice, in some sense, to give you a taste uh, of, uh, of this remarkable writer and uh, some of his remarkable characters, because also, in addition to uniting the Jewish people and, in some sense, standing for a certain kind of Jewish culture, Shalom Aleichem created arguably the most famous Jewish character of the 20th century. And with this, I will give you a slight autobiographical anecdote of my own. As Ari told you, uh, I have fast, I have fasted today, uh, and I am traditionally observant. Uh, and uh, I went to uh, my college roommate's wedding, and I was wearing a yarmulke. Now, I should point out this was unusual only insofar as my college roommate was a Methodist living in Iowa, and, uh, in a, and, and it was the wedding took place in a small rural town in Iowa, um, where when it was catered by a place called Red's Diner, this is true, um, it was not a hipster Red, it was actually a diner owned and operated by a guy named Red. Um, very nice food, by the way. So anyway, I am been asked by my roommate to serve as an usher, and I'm delighted to do this, and you know, I'm walking up and down the aisle of the church pew, and I'm bringing people in, and a lady on the end of the, one of the pews stops me and says, points to my yarmulke and says, I know what that is, and I said, well, oh, okay, she goes, I costumed Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> It really has gone everywhere, right? I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you, I am not, I mean, I'm a professor, so by, by, my natural instinct is to give homework. I mean, you're all very nice, so I'm not going to do that. But if you decide to, to do this, go back home uh, and type in on YouTube, right? Type in, quote, Fiddler on the Roof, unquote, and then put in almost any language in the world, Hindi or Turkish or Japanese. You know, you will find some high school or community theater production in that language that has been uploaded to YouTube. It's just remarkable the spread that Shalom Aleichem created, as I say, arguably the most, the most popular Jewish character of the 20th century. Maybe Superman gives him a run for his money, but Superman is kind of a metaphor, so I'm not sure if it counts. Uh, I think that you will understand, or I hope, by the end of uh, this talk, a little bit more about what the history of that character is and why perhaps he resonates so, so broadly, uh, not just um, among Jews, but, but among the world entire. Okay, so in order to do this, I want to get back to the man himself, to Shalom Aleichem, which of course is not the man himself because Shalom Aleichem is not his name. Shalom Aleichem was born, Shalom, that, that part is true, that is his first name, but what his last name is, or the rest of his name, is a sign of the complex culture into which this young uh, guy was born. Uh, you could call him Sholom Nachumovich Rabinovich, right? If you asked for a last name in the way that we think of last names, it would be Rabinovich. But that was, in some sense, a requirement of the Tsarist empire in which Sholom was born into. Jews in traditional society, and in the society Sholom was born into, was a traditional society, did not themselves use last names except as a kind of government convenience. So he might have been known as Sholom ben Nachum, right, which would have been the name that he would have been called up to the Torah in. But probably he was known, as it was in Yiddish culture, as Sholom Reb Nachums, 
right? Shalom, that is, Nahum's son. Uh, but even that, this, this triangulating between Yiddish and Hebrew traditional and Russian culture speaks a lot about the world into which he was born into. And I'll talk a little bit more about the Nahum, who features in Shalom's name. Now, Nahum himself was a very interesting character compared to a lot of the parents, a lot of the fathers, particularly of most modern Jewish writers. Most modern Jewish writers grew up, like Shalom did, in a traditional society of this period, but their families were very traditional and they had to kind of break away from that traditional world, which led to a certain kind of psychological feeling of rupture uh, that would end up expressing itself in all sorts of complicated feelings towards tradition. Okay? Uh, Nahum, Shalom's father, was a little different because he already was someone who was beginning to pay attention to the Enlightenment, the Western Enlightenment that was slowly but surely making its way into Eastern Europe by the time his son Shalom was born in the 1850s, in 1859. Okay? So when by the time that Shalom was being raised, he was being raised in a family that said, it's, that was listening to the tenets of this Jewish enlightenment, this Haskalah or Haskalah in Yiddish, that said, it's okay to engage with Russian culture. It's okay to read outside literature. It's okay to think that what you want to do is be a full participant in Russian society, but as a committed Jew. You can have a certain kind of synthesis. And so when Sholem himself began to read Russian literature and to write Russian and even wanted to go to a Russian school, to a Russian high school, to a gymnasia, which almost no one else in his community ever did, it was with the approval and support of his father. And that made a huge difference, I think it's fair to say, in Sholem's own psychology and his well-being. Well, what about Sholem's mother? Well, in Sholem's adolescence, he had two tragedies that took place, one greater than the other. The first was that his family lost their sense of socioeconomic security. When Shalom was a young kid, uh, his family were, were fairly well off. I guess you would say they were somewhere between upper middle class and lower upper class uh, on the spectrum. Uh, they had a whole, his father had a whole bunch of businesses, but he seemed to have been cheated out of, by, uh, in business by a partner of his, by a business partner, and his father, who, as I say, despite his modern orientation, was a traditional guy, a traditionally religious guy, refused to take the partner to a Russian court because he felt it would be a chilol Hashem, a desecration of the divine name. Uh, and as a result, he went bankrupt instead. So that was tragedy number one. So Shalom had started out fairly comfortable from a socioeconomic perspective and had lost uh, his money. You'll understand those hand motions a little later in the lecture. And for all of you listening on iTunes, you're out of luck. You should have come. The second th tragedy, though, that was much worse, much worse, uh, was that around the time of his bar mitzvah, Sholem's mother died uh, of, a cholera, of cholera in an epidemic, in a cholera epidemic. And of course, this was a, a, a great tragedy to, to Sholem. And uh, perhaps it's not surprising that uh, as a result, he spends less time in, in many of his writings talking and thinking about his mom than he does about his dad, who lived till he was much you know, older. Um, Sholem's father, this Nachum, had to remarry. Shalom had a number of siblings, and, and, and this was 
you know, necessary, uh, and, and being remarried quickly was not surprising in Eastern Europe. So he went off to the big city to find himself a wife. Now, Sholem's father seems to have misrepresented both his socioeconomic situation and, and the number of kids that he had. Yeah, I'm not sure how he thought he was, he was going to get away with that, but, but it, it reminds me a lot of dating on the internet, you know what I mean? It's sort of... Uh, anyway, he, he, she comes back, he marries her, she comes back uh, you know, to this small town that they're in, and she is not happy, to put it mildly. And, and that's forgivable, I suppose, and certainly understandable. But what's less excusable is that she seems to have taken it out on the kids. Uh, and it is perhaps in that vein that it's worth noting that Sholem's, the first literary effort, or at least the, the, the thing that he calls in his memoir his first literary effort, is an alphabetized collection of his grandmother's curse, uh, stepmother's curses. Okay, so all of you, I think, uh, are aware that a Yiddish curse, uh, you know, is not simply a, a four-letter word. It's not a, a barnyard epithet. It's an Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, curse. It, it, it has more juice, right? It's more creative than that. My personal favorite. This is uh, not a good room for it, but my personal favorite is that you should be like a chandelier. People know this one? That you should hang by day and burn by night. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good curse. Um, okay, so I remember what Ari said about the iTunes. Um, so what ends up, uh, what ends up happening uh, is that Shalom is writing late at night, according to the evidence of his memoir. Shalom is writing late at night, and he's alphabetizing these curses, and his stepmother sneaks up on him and discovers him. And so already, even before she sees you know, what, what it, it's going to be, right? he knows he's in trouble because kerosene is expensive, and paper is expensive, and ink is expensive. Right? And, and here he is. And what's more, of course, what he's writing. But at least according to the evidence of his memoir, um, what he says is that the stepmother reads it, and instead of being like really angry with him, she laughs. And she kind of lays off him a little bit more from then on. Not, all, not entirely, right? But, but a little bit. But a little bit. And it, it strikes me that in some sense this is the key to Shalom Aleichem's comic sensibility, and in fact, to a certain kind of Jewish humor writ large. Bad things happen in the world. There are terrible things that happen in the world, right? And you can turn them into literature, into art, into comedy, and people will laugh, and it will help some. It won't solve the problem, right? It won't, it won't make the problem go away. That, that would be too much to ask from from comedy or from literature, but it, it, it does help it, at least for a little while. And that was a lesson I think that Shalom learned early on and that would continue on again for, 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 for the rest of his literary career. Bearing in mind, though, that literature is not life, it's not surprising that Shalom wanted to get out of the house as soon as he possibly can, and his hope was that he would begin to follow the path of a Jewish Enlightenment-oriented individual, right? He was already in a Russian high school. He was doing quite well academically in that high school. And the hope would be that he would matriculate at a Russian university, right? And that he would be able then to become 
a, uh, a professional, maybe in one of the areas that really were open to Jews increasingly, areas like medicine or like law, right? He could be a doctor, he could be a lawyer. Uh, and he would, you know, then perhaps even be able to live outside the pale of settlement, that area that the Russia had essentially restricted most Jews from living in. That could have been the dream. Um, it is lucky for us that that did not work out, because otherwise I think we would not, be, uh, we would not have any of Shalom Aleichem's creations. Um, what happened was, through a series of circumstances involving uh, when he would have to go into military service, uh, the Russian government refused to allow him to matriculate into university. They just wouldn't let it happen. Uh, obviously, there could be exceptions made on occasion, but there was no particular reason for this random Jew to have that exception made on his behalf by the Russian government. And so there it lies, Sholem's path to a standard career lay in ruins. Uh, a turn of the wheel of fortune again. Um, what happened then was that Sholem decides that he can't do this. He's going to fall back on his intelligence and his education and to become a private tutor instead. This is what he, he can do this and through a series uh, of circumstances he becomes a tutor to the daughter of a very, very wealthy Jewish landowner, actually a Jewish estate manager uh, in, 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 uh, in Eastern Europe. Okay, and now I want to skip ahead a couple of years. Shalom Aleichem is beginning to write furiously in Yiddish, and he has a very strong idea about what Yiddish literature should be, and this involves taking on the current most popular writer of Yiddish literature and trying, in his own words, to pulverize him, to eliminate him from the public. This was a guy named Nachum Meir Shekovich, who I'm sure you've all heard of. No? No? Okay, so I guess he did his job pretty well. Um, this guy, as, as Shalom Aleichem writes, he says, this guy is not writing about sort of the real story of, of real Jews. He's not writing a kind of realistic literature. He's writing this ridiculous, melodramatic fiction about things like where a star-crossed uh, star love between a tutor and uh, the daughter of a very wealthy person, and they fall in love, and then... It, well, you can see where this is going, because Shalom had his tongue in cheek at least a little bit. This is exactly what happened to him. This daughter, Olga Loyev, of this landowner, Eli Melech Loyev, uh, sees, uh, she is around 12 and a half, I think, at the time. He's around 17. She, she sees him, um, and it is uh, an attraction at first sight. It becomes a real literary romance. They're together for years. Um, and now it's time to skip ahead again to a number of years later, when 1899, in fact, this is about 20 years later, when Sholem Aleichem writes a Tevye story. And he writes the story, the story that I think you're probably all familiar for, with, either from the books or from Fiddler on the Roof, it's preserved there, with Muttel and Seitel, everyone remembers this, and Tevye finds out that the two of them, Muttel and Seitel, have arranged amongst themselves to be married, right? And if you recall, Tevye's objection to the match is not primarily that Muttel is not wealthy, right? There is Laser Wolf, who is a much, socioeconomically speaking, is a much better match, right? But he doesn't really like him. He kind of likes Muttel, right? What Tevye is upset about is that nobody asked him, right? Nobody asked him. This all went on. Uh, this all, the decision was made without speaking to him. Again, 
Shalom Aleichem was reaching into his own autobiographical recollections because this is exactly the attitude that Eli Melech Loyev had when he found out that Olga and Shalom were conducting a romance under his nose. He didn't have any issue with the fact that his you know, very wealthy daughter, or, or soon-to-be-wealthy daughter, would be uh, marrying a, a poor tutor without any uh, prospects, without any financial prospects. That didn't bother him. But what bothered him was that nobody asked him. Right? And so one morning, once Elimelech becomes alerted to this by a visiting relative, one morning, Sholem wakes up in his nice room. He comes downstairs. The family is entirely gone from the house. His wages have been left on the table. And there is a stage uh, coach waiting outside to take him anywhere, anywhere but, but there. Uh, he has been given notice unceremoniously, and all contact has been severed between him and his beloved. Uh, I will point out that Shalom tries to maintain contact with her. He enlists a faithful family servant in order to have a go-between of letters between Olga and himself. Unfortunately, that faithful family servant was faithful to the father. Uh, he knows where his wages are coming from, right? And uh, that's the end of that. Um, let me pause briefly to talk about the second concern of a biographer with his subject. The first, if you recall, is a writer being very boring. The second is that someone who you like may turn out, and this is a technical term, to be an ass, <laughs> right? You know, you say, oh, I really admire this guy, I love the writer, and then you, you know, find out he kicks dogs, he takes candy from babies, right? It's just a terrible thing, right? And one of the concerns you have, you know, here, Shalom, you know, he has this heiress, uh, you know, what's going to be, maybe this is really just, uh, you know, for, for financial purposes. But I'm pleased to report to you that this is not the case, that uh, all works out. Shalom and Olga do marry. They live uh, happily married uh, with what seems to be a genuine ardor-filled romantic match until he dies. He predeceases her. Uh, you know, there are ups and downs about for the fortune uh, in their marriage, but their love seems to maintain all the way through, which I, which I thought was very nice to find out, and I was very relieved, I'll be honest. <laughs> anyway, they do get married. They marry one another. Olga, who is actually a remarkable individual on her own, she's a young woman, she elopes with Shalom, potentially giving up uh, everything in order to be with the man that she loves. Um, this is not what happens, though. Uh, Eli Melech grumpily takes back Shalom, tries to enlist him in the family business. That doesn't go that well. Elimelech dies a, a couple of years, about a year and a half into the marriage of a stroke. By virtue of Russian inheritance law, uh, it does not, the, the money, the estate passes to the male, even if the male is not the blood relative. And so, in that twist of the fortune, Shalom has gone from being a poor tutor, sort of kicked out of the house, to being the heir of the, of the lawyer of the state and one of the wealthiest Jews in Eastern Europe. Nice switch. He then takes his family, he's already had a daughter, he takes his family, he moves outside of the Pale of Settlement to where if you have money, you know, you can live, he, and he begins uh, in Kiev to live well and to become a businessman, an investor, and a speculator um, there, on the stock exchange there. Now, I know all of you have come here saying, Yes, I know I wanted to hear about Shalom Aleichem's life, but I also wanted some financial advice. I hope that he is going to provide both. So I am happy uh, to do this from Shalom Aleichem's life. What financial advice can I give you if you inherit a lot of money from your father-in-law and you decide to move and become an investor? So here it goes. Number one, 
know what you're doing. Okay, that's, that's advice number one. Number two, if you don't know what you're doing and you give the money to other people to invest, please do some background research into them to know that they're not total crooks. Number two. And number three, if you haven't done either of that, at least pay close attention to your investments and don't spend all your time writing Yiddish novels. Okay, you're, you're welcome. Okay. So that is essentially uh, what happened to Sholem Aleichem. All of this happens. The, uh, he's beginning to lose a, a lot of money, and then it's exacerbated. The stock market crashes in 1890. He loses the rest of his money. He is forced to flee the country to escape creditors. His mother-in-law, Elimelech's widow, who has a nest egg of her own, bails him out and then gives him the rest of her money to invest. You can see where this is going. He loses that, too, uh, and she is forced to move in with him for the rest of her life. And she apparently basically never speaks to him again. Uh, basically. It's, a, it's not a happy scene in that, in, from that perspective in the household. Uh, this is not a good scene. And so as a result, Sholem now has to turn to a situation that uh, before this had been kind of a pleasure, but now has become a necessity, which is writing. As I had sort of briefly alluded to with this literary attack on Shomer, Right, Sholem and, and, and writing the Yiddish novels, Sholem had already begun his literary career. He had, from an early age, been a scribbler, the curses, other kinds of writing, um, and he had already begun to write short stories, a couple of novels, um, and, 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 and begun to, uh, you know, publish regularly in whatever Yiddish press there was at the time, which wasn't much. There wasn't very many venues, but what there was, he was publishing in. Um, and he had even created a literary anthology of his own, which he had backed with his own cash, in which he published some of these novels, and he had gotten a lot of the great figures, or people who would become the great figures of modern Yiddish literature, to publish in that anthology. Um, critics would sometimes carpet him that the only reason uh, you know, he was uh, accepted as a Yiddish writer was because he was bankrolling his way in, whether that's true or not, uh, it's certainly true that the novels were not quite, with one or two exceptions, they, they only show glimpses of the promise that will later develop. Um, but now, after the stock market crash, after he's lost all his money, that, that stuff, which was something he could do, right, really becomes his only way of making a living. And so what he decides to do is to issue a literary prospectus kind of like a couple of pages that he would send out to potential subscribers. It was sort of a 1890s Kickstarter. Uh, and, you know, he would, he would show them this, these things, and if they liked it, they would give money, and then he would be able to produce, to live so that he could produce the whole work. And in that prospectus appears Shalom Aleichem's first great character. Again, perhaps not surprisingly, it is a character based on his own autobiographical experience, and it's a character that becomes so famous that it becomes his name, becomes a byword in Eastern European Jewry for a Luftmensch, for an airman, someone who has dreams but doesn't really succeed very much. And that person is now, iTunes people listen up, that, anyone know? No. Menachem Mendel, yes, exactly, Menachem Mendel, right? And Menachem Mendel... Um, is, in the first version of this, he is someone who takes his wife's dowry, 
and invests it in the stock exchange and loses it all, right? But it's not just the story, right? But it's, or, or stories, because there are a couple of them, and I'll get back to that. But it's the way, of course, in which this tale is told that is the important and the funny part. It is told in a series of uh, letters, in, in, in an epistolary exchange between Menachem Mendel, who is in the city, right, investing, and his wife, Shana Shandel, who has been left behind in the shtetl, right? And in order to understand the county, I have to tell you a little bit of something about 19th century Yiddish letter writing styles, which is that you have this kind of very formal kind of Hebraic salutation, right? And then the Yiddish is underneath, the sort of regular Yiddish that you would speak. And so in some ways, how do I put this? In some ways, this is a sampling of what Shana Shandel's letters sound like. They say, to my esteemed husband, Menachem Mendel, may he have an everlasting paradise, may his light shine, you're a schmuck. <laughs> right? So that's basically what happened. And the reason that, that she thinks that he's a schmuck is because Menachem Mendel will basically, A, he doesn't quit while he's ahead, right? And he doesn't know when he's beat. Right, so at these letters, right, you know, he's doing very well, and she says, you don't know what you're doing, which is true, right, you should come home, and he doesn't come home, and then he, you know, he says, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, then things go up, and then they explode, but then, remember I said this was a series of stories, Menachem Mendel reappears, unbowed, ready to try it again, and again, it's up and down, up and down. Something like Shalom Aleichem's own experience, where he also had had up and down, and, but then there was another up. And just because then there was another down didn't mean that it wouldn't, the wheel wouldn't turn again. It had before, after all. And so with the repetition of these stories, Menachem Mendel becomes something more than just the comedy of a businessman who doesn't know his business. Right? He becomes more than just a schmuck. Right? He becomes something of a symbol of hope. And in fact, of Jewish hope. Because it's fair to say that anybody who looks at Jewish history, you know, might say, well, it's unbelievable that after all of the ups and downs that people keep, <coughs> excuse me, people keep moving along. People keep hoping. People keep dreaming. This may or may not be a useful point to interject parenthetically that Shalom Aleichem was besotted with the great Jewish dream the great dream of Jewish history, which was, of course, the dream of Zion. That from a very early age and all through his life, Shalom Aleichem was deeply involved with Zionism. He did not know, in fact, he was somewhat cynical uh, of the idea that Jews would ever get their act together enough to actually establish a Jewish state, but he dreamed of it very deeply. And, of course, he died, he died in 1916, many decades, decades before the Jewish state was created, but he would have been, no one would have been more delighted than him to see the fulfillment of that dream. Okay. At any rate, I think it's time to talk about Shalom Aleichem's summer plans and Menachem Mendel's cousin. This prospectus doesn't go that well. It goes okay, and there are other Menachem Mendel's, Mendel stories appear, but Shalom is still sort of scrabbling a little bit. He publishes here and there. But he wants to live in the lifestyle to which he has become accustomed. And one of the features of that lifestyle that Russian upper-class individuals and middle-class individuals as well did was that they went out of the city 
for their summers, right? You got out of the city, it was hot there, it was a lot of people, you'd go out, it would be nice nature, you would relax, and you would live in these dachas. And of course, <clears throat> excuse me, of course, 19th century technology being what it is, there's no refrigeration, there's ice, but there's no refrigeration. And so, if you really wanted certain kinds of things fresh, certain kinds of foodstuffs fresh, particularly dairy items, you would uh, get them from someone who would come every day, someone like a local dairyman. Again, I think I see, you see where this is going. The dairyman in Boyarka, the town in which Shalom Aleichem and his family summered, was named Tevya. Now, we have on the evidence of Shalom Aleichem's daughter, who wrote a lovely memoir of her father, that Shalom would carry around a notebook, right? He loved to talk to people, and he would carry around a notebook, and he would write down everything, lots of things, things that he thought were interesting in that notebook as the fodder for future stories, presumably. And Shalom Aleichem's daughter reports that Shalom used to love spending time with this dairyman from Boyarka named Tevya and would write down frantically all sorts of things that Tevya said. Now, a couple of years after that prospectus, that prospectus appears two years after the stock market collapse in 1892, and in 1894, Shalom Aleichem writes to a friend of his, who's also a publisher of literary anthologies, a guy named Mordechai Spector, and says that he has a story that is going to be called uh, A Great Jackpot, um, the story of Tevye the Dairyman as narrated by himself in his very own words. Thank you very much. Spectre, Spectre reads the um, story, and he writes back to Shalom Aleichem that he doesn't like the story at all. And Shalom Aleichem responds, and he says, please don't be offended, but the world is going to love this story. I don't know whether it's because the world knows more than you or because it knows nothing at all. Uh, regardless, when the story comes out, it begins to attract attention, and obviously the character, Tevye, will attract more and more attention as the years go on. Now, whatever it is that Shalom was talking with Tevye about, whatever was, he was writing in that little notebook, it is almost certain, in fact, I, can, I, I will say it's certain, that it is not the story that appeared ostensibly, you know, as word for word delivered from Tevye himself, because it is another of Shalom Aleichem's typical stories about a boom and bust about finances. Tevye, as you wouldn't know from seeing Fiddler on the Roof, um, starts out his story as a, not as a dairyman, but as a wood hauler. He lives in a village, right? He doesn't live in a shtetl, actually. He lives in the stories in a, in a, in a village, much more on the outskirts of Jewish society, and he makes his living with the back-breaking task of schlepping logs from uh, the, you know, the woods to around and hoping that people will buy them in order to light their fires and, and what have you. It is only because of the jackpot that he has, the titular jackpot, he finds a couple of old women lost in the forest. He takes them back to their house. It turns out that they're wealthy. And essentially, the tip they give him, the sort of cash that they have in their pockets that they give him, is enough to change his circumstances entirely. Okay. In fact, it's you know it's about twenty rubles, but that is enough for for Tevye. But in fact, it is so much that Tevye decides. Shades again of Shalom Aleichem's autobiography. Tevye decides to become an investor. 
He's got money. And, and here he says, well, if I was a rich man, you know, what would I do once the investments all come in? And so he gives the money to invest with the only person he knows, a distant cousin of his wife's. I think you can guess who that is, Menachem Mendel. Right? Menachem Mendel, his cousin, right, or his cousin by marriage, but his cousin, invested, of course, does what Menachem Mendel does best. He loses everything, right? But nonetheless, again, there's that sense of comic sensibility. He's still a little better off than he was before. He's not as good as he was, but he's still a little better off. He is good enough to have bought a cow before he gave the excess you know, money off to Menachem Mendel. And so now, instead of schlepping and breaking his back, he's now a dairyman. Okay. So those stories, the first two stories of Tevye, the ones that come out in the early years, really are, again, Shalom Aleichem's, they're like Menachem Mendel, they were Shalom Aleichem's stories about money. In fact, in fact, Shalom Aleichem is so insistent on, these, on, on, on indicating to his readers the, the depth of the fiscal hole that Tevye is in, that he puts him into a proverbial situation, a situation right out of a proverb. He says that Tevye has seven daughters. Tevye, or I should say more precisely, Tevye tells Sholem Aleichem in this monologue that he has seven daughters. The reason for this is because Tevye, Sholem Aleichem through Tevye is citing or referring to an old Yiddish proverb, which is, Zibin Techter is Kain Gelechter. Anyway, so I see some people here are familiar with Yiddish. Seven daughters is no laughing matter, right? Why is it no laughing matter? Dowries, right? Seven dowries to pay off, right, in, in, in Eastern European society. So this is, though, a throwaway. In those two stories, it's just it, the daughters are not mentioned any, really any more than that. That's really the point of it. And if the money comes in, it will allow him to marry off the daughters. It's only a couple of years later, on the cusp of the 20th century, that Shalom Aleichem realizes, casting about, because he likes this character, people like this character, he wants to do more with them, that the daughters can actually do something else. They can be more than just sort of a plot point. They can be the heart of the stories themselves. And I use that word heart consciously, because it, within the daughters' romances, the story of how Tevye reacts to the daughters' romances, we can see the entire changing world of Eastern European Jewish life and how it is the traditional Jewish life is going to react to that. Starting out with the story of Tzaitl, right, in a story in Yiddish which is called Heintike Kinder, which means something like kids today, and whose name, her name, Tzaitl, means what? What does Tzait mean? Time, right? She is a child of the times. She's a child of time. And starting with there, and then moving with Hodel and Chava, who begin to speak to the kind of the, the most important movement for a Russian Jew in the first years of the 20th century, the increasing left-wing activity that would culminate at this point in the first Russian Revolution of 1905. Of course, it would later become the October Revolution, but at this point, that's, people knew that a revolution was coming, and it was coming in, in 1905. The daughters represent these changes. And now I'd like to say something in the name of my teacher, uh, Professor Ruth Weiss, who made a very, very interesting point uh, about the Tevye stories. And she said that 19th century and 20th, early 20th century literature is full, full of stories about generations doing different things, generational conflict. It's full of it, right? But 
to the best of her knowledge, and of mine as well, there's only one story, the Tevye stories, that tells that generational conflict from the perspective of the older generation. Right? Think about that for a second. Right? The younger generation is coming of age. They have a new idea. They're full of, of, of confidence of that new idea, and they are, they're willing to fight everybody for it, and that's very interesting. But in some sense, what's even more powerful and more interesting is people who have a worldview already. It's established. They have the wisdom that comes with that worldview, understand what it works and what doesn't work, and then are asked to try and change that in the face of new ideas and new challenges. And the question of how much they are willing to change, how much they can change, what will happen when they don't, those are the questions that Shalom Aleichem, who was not an old man when he began these stories, but he was in some sense an extremely wise and mature individual uh, as a result of some of these tribulations that he had been through, he himself was beginning to think about those issues from the perspective of the parent rather than the child. And these questions became very powerfully part of the rest of his story because the optimism that this younger generation expresses, right? Chava, for example, was the heart of the Tevye stories herself who has a very complicated challenge to Tevye. He says, why is it that people have to be separated? Why can't everybody be equal? Which is the heart of the challenge of 1905 of these socialist revolutions, right? But the 1905 revolution dissolves in counter-revolution, in protest, in acrimony, in anti-Semitic conservative backlash. It dissolves in pogroms. Pogroms that Shalom Aleichem witnesses himself from the top floor of a hotel in Kiev. He watches the pogromists attack people on the streets beneath him. And it's from then on that he says, all of the possibilities that I had for my earliest period of hoping to be a Russian Jew, hoping to triangulate, right? Russian, traditional, Yiddish, Jewish, all of those things. I don't feel, he says, I don't feel that, that Russia has a place for me anymore. I don't feel that there's a place here. And his beloved Russia, he would hope Although he died in New York, as I said, he hoped that after World War I, he died in the middle of World War I, that his bones would be reinterred in Russia. He loved it very deeply, but it was not a place for him. And so he pursued other of the ideas that Jews were beginning to think about in a time when, when many of them felt the same way. He explored the possibilities of revolutionary transformation, which didn't seem to be working out. He explored the possibilities of American emigration, which also didn't work out for him. And he dreamed of going to Zion, but because of illnesses uh, that he had, in part as a result of all the trials and tribulations he would continue to go through, that never worked out for him either. And the rest of his life was full of many other adventures, adventures that he took his characters on with him as he moved around Europe and to America and back and back again, as he had all of the crises of escaping uh, World War I's outbreak and sailing through mine-infested waters, as he succumbed to illness and then struggled back, as he traveled to audiences which would grow and grow through trains, uh, through, uh, on the train, and as he would struggle with uh, unscrupulous publishers uh, and inveterate and, and very uh, obstinate playwrights uh, and, and producers uh, alike, 
All sorts of things that I promise you are dealt with in great detail right here in the book. All the, you know, his characters came with him and people increasingly through the exploding venues in the 20th century of the Yiddish press and the Yiddish theater followed those characters and felt that they had someone who was watching their tribulations and living them with them and, and putting them in a thoughtful way and in the mouths of characters for them to make sense of and, as I said, to maybe laugh about a little bit and feel a little bit better about things. And it was those people and many others besides who turned out on the streets of Manhattan and the Bronx and Brooklyn to pay homage to a deceased writer. One more point and then I'm going to stop and take some questions. It's getting time. Shalom Aleichem, when he died, his family released a will he had written the year before to the newspapers. It was a will that was designed to be released to, public, to the public. And in that will, he said many interesting things, but I'll focus right now on two. The first is that he said that his family, instead of, celebrate, instead of mourning his death, his yard site, the anniversary of his death through tears, they should come together and they should read his stories and they should laugh. That should be his recollection. Not through tears, but through laughter. But of course, knowing that the occasion would be a mixture of both. And let me, I first have to, you know, just as I, as I often do when I talk about Shalom Aleichem, express a remarkable uh, um, appreciation to Shalom Aleichem's family, who coming up on 100 years, he died in 1916, it's 2014, have continued this anniversary and continued uh, this, to, to, to strike this very delicate balance uh, in reading Shalom Aleichem's work. That's point one. Right, is that sensibility of laughter and tears that Shalom Aleichem crafted so well and would continue uh, in his legacy. And through these, this will was, was, was shared with a wider community. The second was something that Shalom Aleichem very, I think, importantly did in that will, which was released to the public in Yiddish and in English. And in its English form was published both in the New York Times and read out on the floor of the House of Representatives, which is a rare thing, I think it's fair to say, for a Yiddish writer. I should point out that you know, there's no C-SPAN footage from 1916. So you know, it could have just been entered into the record. That I don't know. But still, it's in the congressional record. It's certainly the case that in that will, which was, as I say, released in Yiddish and in English, Shalom Aleichem says that those stories should be read in any language that his family and others feel comfortable with. There is no one who is a greater champion of Yiddish than Shalom Aleichem. But Shalom Aleichem understood that history and Jewish culture adapts and that his stories and that his culture had to adapt and should adapt with it. Whether that was true of various technological media, he loved the newspaper when it was the new thing, he loved, radio, he loved uh, record players, uh, he loved actually the new films. That were he wrote uh, screenplays uh, for Tevya, as a matter of fact. Um, adaptation persistence, resilience, those were watchwords that were very important to him and I think, of course, are important to all of us. And it's that which made Shalom Aleichem's work so persistently adaptable in many ways and so powerful to increasingly uh, divorced generations as years and years go by. But mostly, and with this I'll end, mostly it was a theme. And I'll skip ahead about 50, so, 50 or so years to after Shalom Aleichem's funeral, 
when Jerome Robbins and Sheldon Harnick and others were sitting around a conference room during the tryout period uh, of uh, a Fiddler on the Roof, and they still, even though this was in previews, even though the show was, in, was playing, they still did not have an opening number. Right? And, and Robbins kept on saying, we don't have a number that states, that articulates the theme of the show. Right? What is this show about? And, and Bach and Harnick and others, Stein and others would say, well, you know, it's about uh, a, a father and his daughters. And, you know, and he said, no, that's the plot. What's the theme? And one of them said, well, you know, it's about sort of a tradition. And he said, yes, go write that. That sounds good. And they did, and you all are aware of the opening number then that, uh, that established. And of course, that issue, right, of tradition, that is, as I said before, in Tevye's very bones and in Shalom Aleichem's very biography, tradition and how it adapts and copes with change, that is something which is very essential, yes, to the Jewish story of the 20th century, but it's essential to everyone and every story. Everyone has a tradition. Regardless of who you are, how old you are, how you are, everyone has a tradition that they feel is under change or trying to figure out what to keep and what to change, which is why someone can easily say to people, I can't believe that Fiddler on the Roof stories were published by Shalom Aleichem originally in Yiddish. It seems so Japanese. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time and for your attention. I think we have time for a... We have time for a couple of questions. So, uh, ma'am, right here. I'll repeat the uh, question. Yeah, go on. Thank you. So uh, I want to make sure that I, everyone gets a chance to hear the question, so I'll repeat the question. The question is, does my book make a good bar mitzvah gift? Uh, yeah, yes, it, it does. No. Um, no, no, the question, which is a great question, is trying to connect and connecting this to, uh, to the first lecture that I gave here in Orange County on, on Seinfeld and on Curb Your Enthusiasm and the style uh, of that Jewish humor, that Jewish comedy being one of separation, of being apart, feeling alienated. Uh, does Tevya, does Shalom Aleichem's humor have that in common? Are there, are there links that can be made between uh, uh, Shalom Aleichem, obviously who comes well before, and, uh, uh, and Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm? And I will say, I think it's a great question, I'll say absolutely, and I'll, I'll, I'll focus on two different ways in which that's the case. Uh, the, first, uh, the second will be the one that you're intuiting, but I want to talk about an earlier one first. The Tevye stories, and some of this is preserved in Fiddler on the Roof, but it's, it's, it's very much the case in the original stories themselves, are, are monologues, right? They are 
stories that are told by the character Tevye to a very specific listening audience member. That is, someone who is called Shalom Aleichem. Right? Tevye stops Shalom Aleichem, he meets him, he says, how have you been? Uh, Pani, as he says, Mr. Shalom Aleichem, or Sir Shalom Aleichem. Um, you know, it's been a long time since we've last seen each other, here's my latest tale. Right? And that monologue, which is designed for an audience and in order to get certain kinds of reactions from that audience, even if we don't hear the audience's response, is very much like, quite frankly, stand-up comedy. Right? And if you recall, those of you who are fans of Seinfeld, you'll recall, uh, or at the first lecture, first, the idea that Seinfeld starts out as a stand-up comic and that the show itself often featured in its early seasons uh, clips of Seinfeld, or, or made-up clips of Seinfeld's stand-up act, right, that would then be interspersed with whatever else was going on. That sense that Sholem Aleichem had of understanding the ebbs and rhythms and flows of spoken language to achieve a kind of comic effect that he recaptured, or captured, I should say, on the, uh, on the page, that rhythm is, is very influential, I think, in creating a certain kind of talkiness that would then go on to influence uh, stand-up comics, uh, particularly Jewish stand-up comics, who would then go on to invent Seinfeld. I'm not saying, as one uh, critic uh, of my book suggested, that I, I think that Sholem Leichem invented stand-up comedy. I don't think that's true. But he, he did have an influence uh, on the Jewish humor of talking that would then go on to create and be expressed in stand-up comics. The other is the sense of apartness. Now, the, the, the interest, here there's similarities and there really are continuities, but there are also important differences, as you were intuiting as well. The difference here is that Shalom Aleichem is primarily writing in a Jewish language for a Jewish audience. Uh, and so the apartnesses that he creates are twofold. One is, and this is something that's often hard to capture in translations, the differences between various sub-constituencies of Jewish life. Uh, you know, Litvox and Galicianers, right? Or, or German uptown Jews and Eastern European downtown Jews. A lot of these are distinctions that uh, are, are, are largely, though not entirely, effaced today. And it's sort of hard to kind of capture them in a kind of comically meaningful way on the page in the same way that Mark Twain, someone who Shalmalech was compared to, Mark Twain's dialect humor doesn't always work as well now as it probably did in the late 19th century when the various regions of the United States were much more different than, from each other than they are today, although of course there are still regional differences. The second, though, is the difference between Jew and Gentile, which is much more sharply pronounced Right, for being written only in a Jewish-only sphere, and for a constituency who is facing uh, a much more serious consequences of that division than American Jews are today. I'm sure all of us are reading the news of what's going on in France uh, and, and, of course, in Israel. Uh, there are obviously, uh, there is much to say about that, but, the, but in terms of uh, America now versus Russia then, there were great differences. I will just talk about one. For Shalom Aleichem in Tsarist Russia, there was no such thing as what we would now call an interfaith or a mixed marriage, right? That is where a Jew and a, a non-Jew can live together in the house and you can have uh, joint celebrations or different celebrations of different holidays. Marrying a Christian, and at this point in Russia we're talking about Christians, uh, a Christian meant converting to Christianity. That's what it meant in Shalom Aleichem's life.
right? And so certain of the stories of Chava should be seen in that perspective, and that sense of apartness or togetherness is manifested, is very much mindful uh, in that point. So you're absolutely right. There really are these very important continuities, and even the differences are instructive in showing us the other continuities. Yeah, sir, in the back. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question, uh, again, is uh, Shalom Aleichem, it, it is said, was often called the Yiddish Mark Twain. There is a story that has uh, Shalom Aleichem meeting Mark Twain. Someone who was introducing them said uh, to Mark Twain, this is the man they call the Yiddish Mark Twain, and Mark, to which Mark Twain responded, uh, no, I am the man who they call the American Shalom Aleichem. It's a wonderful, wonderful story, uh, and the question is, is it true? Right. So uh, it is certainly the case that when Shalom Aleichem comes to America for the first time in 1906, the American press, both English and Yiddish, uh, are looking for what we would now call a peg. They're looking for something to, to tell the story, a peg to hang the story on. And they come up with the similarities to Mark Twain. They're both uh, kind of dialect writers, as I was just saying in sort of the last question. They both do a kind of regional humor. They were both not particularly successful businessmen and very successful writers. It made sense, right? As a result, perhaps, it's not so surprising that a story comes up about the two of them meeting. Whether it is true or not is a much more tricky question to answer. Um, it is fair to say that, that uh, there are a number of sources when you're doing the biographical research, including most prominently Shalmechem's family, who say that the meeting actually happened. I will say that I looked at the Yiddish press for that very period, and you would think that if Mark Twain attended a reception that Shalom Aleichem was at, the Yiddish press would be all over this. Uh, I mean, Mark Twain was one of the biggest celebrities in America, and to meet a Yiddish writer, even a very famous Yiddish writer, that's big news. I didn't see any record of it, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. But the question then was for me, do I print it in the book? Because I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if it happened or not. Uh, on the one hand, you have uh, the requirements to scholarly fidelity right, and honesty. And on the other hand, you have that wonderful line, I think it's from The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, that movie that says, when the, when the legend becomes truth, print the legend. Um, <laughs> So thanks to footnotes, you can have your cake and eat it too in both kinds of ways. Uh, and I, so I, 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 I say that people believe that this meeting happened, but, but no one is really sure. I would love to find some other source that sort of documented it, uh, but I, I did not see it in any of the Yiddish press. Uh, Man, and then in the back. That's a great point. Uh, so the will is itself creating a new tradition, like the song tradition is. And I think Shalom, uh, it's, a great, it's a great point, because Shalom loved creating traditions, familial uh, and otherwise. Um, he loved to get everybody together, his family together, and make a, I, I, oh, maybe you weren't finished, I'm sorry. Yeah, so uh, he really, it was a kind of feeling that you're getting at that, that really was very powerful uh, in him. Yes, question. So uh, the question is how I picked the subject matter. Uh, I will say that one of the very exciting things about going into Yiddish literature, and this is still very true now, and it was even more true 15 years ago, is the way I, I often say it to people is, you know, you go, if you were in English, 
the field of English, you would go to your, uh, you know, your professor and you would say, I found this writer, his name's William Shakespeare, I think he's pretty good. And, you know, and people would say, well, you know, um, no, there's never been a full-fledged biography of this guy. Um, you know, there's one good book on Hamlet. Uh, I think there's a play that takes place in Scotland, but I'm not sure. You know, this was the state of the entire field of Yiddish studies. Now, this is for very unfortunate reasons. Yiddish studies really started as a discipline in, the, in Europe in the decades before the Holocaust. And between Nazism and then uh, Stalinism, uh, all of the Eastern European sort of efforts in that field were, were tragically cut short. And the American Academy, until recently, you know, had not been very kind to Jewish studies more generally. That has changed a lot in the intervening years. But it just, even though there were remarkable precursors uh, in the last 10 or 15 years or 20 years, people like Ruth Weiss, who I mentioned before, and others, nobody had written this. They just hadn't gotten around, you know, perhaps hadn't gotten around to it. Maybe they, and so it was, as they like to call it in the Academy, a desideratum. Uh, and I said, boy, you know, what a great idea. It's such a great story. And, uh, you know, it just was a remarkable opportunity to do it. So I did. Uh, sir, in the back, and then, and then to you. Okay, two good questions. The first is, is there a bridge, or what is the bridge between that sort of that funeral, right, and, and Fiddler on the Roof? Uh, I will say, and I promise you this one is not a plug, unlike the last thing, but I talk about in the afterlife, there are sort of all of these bridging moments that I sort of identify as this bridge. I'll mention just a couple of them here, right? The, 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 the most important is uh, exemplified by this guy named Maurice Schwartz, who was a great Yiddish actor and director and impresario, and he both, he both performed in and directed Yiddish plays of Tevye uh, in the teens and the 20s. He toured with it for quite a long time. And then he did a very good, still a very good Yiddish film uh, in 1939 of the Tevye stories. So there was a, there was a long-standing Yiddish performance tradition. Um, in terms of English, Shulmuchen was translated after his death a little bit in the pre-war, in the pre-Holocaust period, and then in the 40s and 50s, um, some of you may have these wonderful crown publishers' books of translations by the Butwins, uh, by Julius and Francis Butwin, that, uh, uh, and that became uh, a bestseller. The, the 19, uh, a book called The Old Country of a Collection of Stories uh, became a bestseller. So those were the, um, the, the, uh, uh, some of the most important links. There are others, but some of the most important links in Yiddish and then in English. Uh, in terms of what a recommended uh, selection, I guess I would go, uh, are you speaking about in English or in Yiddish? In English. So uh, I would go with in two different directions, one of which is sort of more of a sampler and the second a more coherent collection. The sampler is perhaps unsurprisingly called the best of Shalom Aleichem. Uh, it is unfortunately out of print, but it should be available uh, in your libraries or on, on uh, eBay or something like that. Uh, and it was edited, among other people, by my teacher, uh, Ruth Weiss, um, and it really has a wonderful sampling of stories. The, the second, a more coherent thing, is a collection of the uh, Tevye stories, all of the Tevye stories, and of a, another selection of tales that take place on railroads called the Railroad Stories, the Eisenbahn Geschichtlis, uh, and those are translated by Hillel Halkin. I think it's a wonderful translation. And uh, if, you, th those are, if you put the two of them together, that's a great starting point uh, for reading Shalom Aleichem. 
Uh, Hillel Halkin is the translator. Ma'am. Mm -hmm. I think it's this interesting question about comedy more generally. It's true of Jewish comedy as well as other kinds of comedy that it is both the, one of the most universal phenomena and one of the easiest to date. In other words, that it gets dated very quickly. Right? So on the one hand, we can t look at some Greek comedy and we can say, this is really hilarious, you know, Aristophanes, what have you. And then you look at many of the jokes in the individual Aristophanes play and you say, hey, this is not funny at all. Um, you have this, this interesting combination. I think that's as true of Jewish comedy as it is of other things. Some of that, of course, can sometimes be because the lexicon of concepts or language that another generation has uh, hasn't transferred over. Um, but that's just another way of saying that there are different times and different, uh, different uh, cultures. But it's amazing how much manages to shine through. And, and, and if you look, in with a proper uh, uh, perspective at Jewish moments of Jewish humor from, from the Bible and from the Talmud and from the medieval period and what have you, you can find things that resonate to this day, but that is pitching my next book that I'm currently writing on, so I'm not going to do that now. Anyone from this side? I feel like I was looking over at this side. Did somebody, sir? Okay, I'll repeat the question. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and it's one that's actually really the, the very cutting edge of scholarly questioning right now. So I, I want to make sure that everyone hears it. Which is, Shalom Aleichem has often been said, and I think rightly, uh, to be extremely difficult to translate for, for two specific reasons. One is that he is a very, very avid user of all sorts of different dialects and all sorts of different kinds of uh, capacious aspects of the Yiddish lexicon, and the other because he has uh, in him, he was, as I had suggested, or maybe I had implied, he loved Hebrew as well as Yiddish. He loved that Hebrew tradition. He put a lot of that material into the works as well, and as a result, there's kind of an interplay between Hebrew and Yiddish that, 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 that seems to be very, uh, very complicated to translate, and, and is. I'm not saying seems, and it is very complicated to translate. That seems to imply that, uh, how would I put this? That seems to imply that the audience for that would also have to have a great deal of complexity uh, you know, at their hands as well. And so the question is, who was Shalom Aleichem's audience? Who was he really writing for? And I think, as I said, that this is getting to a really interesting moment, a real cutting edge moment right now in, in Shalom Aleichem research, such as the field exists. Um, you know, people in, in the academy, I'll just take a moment to say famous, you know, this is a famous person, and when they, or, or famously. And when they say famously, you can, you can insert 
five people know this thing, right? <laughs> the famous article from like the 1937 site, you know, it's not famous. But <laughs> in Shalom Aleichem research, th this is a question of how really, what, what was the audience that he was aiming at? So on the one hand, there are people who suggest that the work is extremely complicated um, and in some sense, their modeling, as you did, this question of Tevye seems to be misquoting uh, these, these biblical and rabbinic texts, and maybe he didn't know, maybe in some sense the, the Yiddish readers are like that as well. The thing is that uh, I'm, on the, I'm on a slightly different side of this, right? Judging from the mass audiences that we know came to see his work, it must have been that a lot of people liked his work. Right? They didn't show up and say, well, we have no idea what this guy's talking about. We don't like him, but we're going to crowd the theaters and, 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 you know, and, and, and come anyway. So I think that that speaks to something also that's been happening with thinking about Tevye's malapropisms recently, um, which is to say that much of what Tevye quotes is from the conventional lexicon of uh, davening, uh, and, and, and various liturgies uh, and, and sort of common phrases, even if they're originally from biblical and rabbinic stock, that a lot of people might normally know. I once gave a paper, not about Shalom Aleichem, but about a different book called What Does It Take to Be an Uneducated Jew? And, you know, it was about a book called the Tzenorena, which was often considered sort of a, a, in the early modern and modern period, kind of a women's Bible. That was often the phrase that it would be uh, it, would, it would be termed. And, you know, I just made the point going through it that you really needed to know a tremendous amount in order to make this book work. In other words, even to know what the sentences meant, you had to understand this. And the convention, and, and the record says that everybody kind of understood this book, which is a way of saying that Eastern European Jewish society was saturated with a certain kind of knowledge to an extent that we would all say is just a, shows remarkable knowledge. Franz Kafka once addressed uh, an audience in the Prague Town Hall and he began by saying, ladies and gentlemen, you know more Yiddish than you think. I think if we all looked at the bases of our own culture, whatever that is, we would realize how much we knew that if someone from Mars or somewhere else came to interview, they would, they would think of us as real experts. That's sort of, I think, the position that often we find ourselves in. A bit of a long-winded answer, and I apologize for that, so I'll just take one last question. Uh, sir. So right now, uh, I'm engaged in writing a history of Jewish comedy. Uh, from the Bible to yesterday. Uh, and uh, there's probably something funny that happened today, so I'll have to include that too. Uh, I, I th and it, it's an interesting question uh, of how to tell that story, uh, including how you define what Jewish comedy is. And I'm, I'm, I'm working on it, so I'm not going to tell you what I think yet. But uh, hopefully uh, I'll be back here in a, in a year or two uh, with the book, and, and maybe you'll, you'll be interested in finding out. So thank you all very much for your time. And thank you. <laughs>